Hello and welcome to Two Crickets in a Thorn Tree. I'm your host, Gabriel Fraser, and I'm joined with Nicholas Lauren. How's it, dude? Yeah, how's it, Gabriel? Uh, we are enjoying the wonders of uh, a wonderful weekend, well, at least for one of us. Dude, what comes after a Brazilian? It's day a Brazilian and one of the lockdown. <laughs> yeah, that's that's about right. That seems... I, I did the maths and it checks out. Yeah. Yeah, I've just had a lovely... I'm back on the farm. So after being a couple of weeks in the grimy inner city, uh, which is pretty heartbreaking in some ways, came back to sort of help my family prepare for the grand unlock, which is what we're looking forward to here, June the 1st. So much of the economy gets to unlock, not all of it. Get hype. Are you going to be going out, Nick? Uh, probably not. I, I might leave uh, my parents' house and go live somewhere else uh, so that I can actually go out. Um, my mom is immunosuppressed, so I don't like to uh, to, to take any risks uh, because she is, you know, she's over 60 and one of the immunosuppressed uh, people, so I don't like to take chances. Yep. No, that seems prudent. Uh, I know we're shooting a podcast here, Nick, but we should talk about maybe rooming together. If you're thinking of moving out, <laughs> I think I think you're moving out too. I think we would strangle each other within probably about a month. I have a bad record with roommates. <laughs> I think you're right, and I think one of the things that we talk about too much is World War One. Yes. Uh, oh, that was a smooth segue. I must say that was that was hot expanse. <laughs> Shall we jump? We really have uh, spent many evenings at uh, Nuno's next to Shy Shy and Marvel. I, th- I think it was basically how we were the nice way. It, it, it was, was arguing about the First World War. Yeah. So, so it's very so, important to us. So, so I think we should talk about, I think we've kind of touched on this, but I think we should talk about similarities and differences between what's happening now and the First World War. Starting out with the sense that they both were the sort of first major cases of internationally coordinated sacrifice uh, in their respective centuries for what historians for a century afterwards struggle to agree on is a good point or not a good point, is a virtue or a vice or an accident. Yeah, I'd say that's a little bit uh, too... too, uh, bold and asserting the novelty there. Um, I think that uh, there's a strong case to be made that the novelty was, that it was perhaps not that super novel in that sense, um, because of course there were sort of world wars before that, but there was nothing on that scale. It was it was something, it was unprecedented. Yeah, I'm just saying the first in a century. I'm not saying yes, it's the first time definitely. that international parts, but it's the first time in a century with its technology. And yeah. It's very hard to find, like, at the time, I think that there was a great sense fairly soon of confusion and, like, you know, people who did go into it gung-ho and waving the flag and and proudly making the sacrifices, sort of, that that vein has always been pumping energy. There are still people, historians and, and kind of just dudes in the bar today who will choose a side in World War One and say they had the just cause? Yeah. But quite quickly, a lot of people went from being into it to feeling that it was a calamity 
that it was a pointless tragedy, that there was something about, that it was trying to teach us something about how human beings don't work. Uh, and sort of great World War One poetry, you know, you see it in, in particularly in English poetry, you see the sort of shift to disillusionment and, uh, and, I, and, I, and I do feel that politically we are going through a time like that. We're sort of going into our unlock with very peculiar circumstances in South Africa. A friend of mine, a uh, Yale professor, sent me a message this morning saying by his calculations, as of last night, Friday, May the 29th, South Africa had the fastest case increase ratio in the world. Ooh. So we're unlocking at a really weird time if you think lockdowns work. So either you think lockdowns work and then this is a nightmare or you think they don't work. And this is still a bit of a nightmare, but at least we're sort of removing one of the obstacles from people being able to have the to best cut. chance of surviving this. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, but it's a weird time of disillusionment. I, I, I feel I feel a kind of World War One disillusionment here. I, I would like to I would like to be difficult and argue that uh, the poets have actually probably perverted a little bit our our vision of what contemporaries thought of the First World War. I think uh, I think in the immediate aftermath, there were the gung honus actually took a while to dissipate, and it was only sort of in the historical memory um, that this that the the, the despair uh, really completely captured that age. Um, uh, so I think you know, that's I think, fair. But let me yeah. add to it that I think that <coughs> Dominic Levin, the, the Cambridge historian, uh, makes the point that if you'd asked most Englishmen or Germans at the time what they were fighting for, they'd struggle to um, produce sort of causes that center on southeastern Europe. Yes, <laughs> and <laughs> timing-wise, the sort of yeah, the little provincial hinterlands uh, were, were were the tinder pots. And then to find the real reasons that it started there, you know, he he finds that there are deep reasons that it started there. But let me but let me try and expand my metaphor, Nick. So one of the theories, let's not say in terms of the right theory, but that there are a lot of theories that were applied to World War One to try to understand it that are increasingly applicable to the the COVID lockdown crisis, the lockdown crisis internationally. One of them was that there was a system of alliances and the system of alliances was to blame for starting World War One, yeah. <laughs> because a small and manageable problem uh, kind of escalated because the whole world had kind of picked one of two teams. And in fact, they weren't even on a neatly defined two teams. There was kind of overlaps and it was a bit. So here it does seem like one of the narratives is that the world was kind of watching this thing coming, maybe not preparing hard enough after <coughs> China and Taiwan. But one of the balance of alliances thing, the first one is the WHO, those who take the WHO seriously and those who don't. And yes. those who don't, the front runner was Taiwan. They were the first to, they shut down their borders when, it, when the WHO was still saying there's no human to human transmission, echoing the Chinese line. And they did not, uh, go for WHO recommended Chinese style lockdown. They had the lowest stringency uh, on Oxford stringency index uh, 12, whereas Sweden, which a lot of people are familiar with, uh, is 40. So much less a sort of regulatory force, just a lot of volunteerism, a lot of call up and a lot of contact tracing together with quarantining people <coughs> as they come through the borders. And they've got 
I don't know. Last time I checked, it was like six deaths. You know, they've got the best sort of yeah. They, they've they've really smashed this thing. I'll, I'll look up the number now. But I must just say, I am a little bit concerned about your cough there, Gabriel. <laughs> so I got tested for COVID. Dude. <laughs> Tell us about that. <laughs> Tell us about the uh, the actual test itself. What did they do? Yeah, so I went to the Lancet Laboratory, which is just <coughs> around the corner from uh, our offices because I was back in Joburg. And they stuck a swab. They said throat or nose. I went for nose. <laughs> it, that thing was like m significantly longer than my cell phone. And most of it went up my nose. It just kept going and it kept going. <laughs> oh it was behind my eyeballs. <laughs> And then it started twisting around. It oh, that's fun. <laughs> and then when they pulled it out, I looked very carefully. I saw no brains there, which I find extremely disappointing because I thought I had brains there. And it turns out I don't, which means I have much less brains than I thought I did. Um, so that was a disappointing part of the results. <coughs> but a satisfying part of the results is I came out negative. So I've just got a garden variety cough here. Cold. So sorry about the disturbance. Oh, but back to World um, War One, Nick. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. I, I must correct you as well. I must do a live fact check. You, yeah. uh, by by many percentage points, you underestimated the number of deaths in Taiwan. It is in fact seven, not six. Oh, I beg your pardon. It had been six for about a month, and then I stopped looking. Yes. <laughs> Continue. Okay. So Taiwan did really well because the first balance of alliance thing. You know, our balance before World War One, the balance of alliances were very much no international regulatory body. They had conventions like the Berlin Convention, famously of 1884, 1885, where Africa was carved up. But they tried to have, <laughs> there wasn't like a League of Nations, UN style body that consistently existed yeah. to manage those things. UK kind of trying to play that role sometimes, but. But there, there wasn't a superpower in the same way that there is today. We had a more multipolar world of, uh, of powers. And the, the uni power of the WHO is, I think the evidence is in. I think it's one of the biggest parts of the problem when it comes to the lockdowns, when it comes yeah. to poor response, also to keeping borders open too long. It's they locked down the, the WHO encouraged people <coughs> to keep borders open and close internal movement up. It should have been the opposite. Taiwan shows that. Taiwan was, was the only country not part of that system of alliances because it had been ejected by that system of alliances well, because Beijing has been kind of brutal. It's not just Taiwan, though. Uh, Vietnam also, you know, they have a troubled history with China despite also being sort of communistic-y, um, sort of pseudo-communist. And they they shut their border to, to China very early on as well. Um, and they've also managed to escape a lot of the worst uh, yep. things. I think they've got, what, no recorded deaths, 328 cases, even better than Taiwan. There you go. So, system of alliances at that level, <coughs> there's a serious echo. Secondly, at an economic level, the grand system of alliance since the end of the Cold War has been Chimerica. That seems to be breaking because of tensions between Washington and Beijing. Tensions that seem likely to persist whoever wins the election at the end of the year in America. Yeah. Another thing is that... <coughs> the system of alliances within Europe, their, their sort of border system has made it difficult. I think that there's a very interesting question, why has Taiwan, Vietnam, countries like that, Japan, South Korea, so outperformed Sweden? 
although there's been a general sort of commitment to the, what I call the call-up, heavy voluntarism with yeah. a few regulations <coughs> rather than the lockdown. I think one of the answers is the sort of border situation in Sweden compared to the border situation in Japan, uh, Taiwan, South Korea, <coughs> and Vietnam. Sweden is kind of locked into a semi-EU, semi-Nordic kind of open borders attitude. It's slightly more sensitive to the problem that Americans have where every time you talk of borders, the word racism comes up. Either it's racist to even think of borders or the people who are actually calling for borders to be shut are racist. Problem on both sides. Um, less of that in Taiwan, Vietnam, Japan, South Korea than there is. Well, they is don't have the same sort of discomfort with their own histories that a lot of countries in the West do. Yep. Uh, they, they, they still have a sort of nationalistic streak in the sense that they're proud of their nations in a very real way at the elite levels. Um, and that means that they don't kind of get captive by these things. Like people in the West and, tend to sort of panic a bit. And I feel like one of the and one of the things about World War One is that maybe national insecurity was one of the problems. So it's not like there was no nationalism. It's just that it was, as you say, uncomfortable with its own history, whether it was France's defeat at the hands of Germany, whether it was <coughs> Austria-Hungary and Russia's insecurity about the Ottoman Empire seizing, you know, or Dar al-Islam having so much of Europe still, their sort of thousand-year view of history, and whether it is the English's sense that, you know, we, we rule, the, rule Britannia, rule the world, and our, our grip seems to be slipping, especially with the Germans and the Austria-Hungarians well, getting and, and, their act. And Germany's fear of uh, the growing power of Russia. The most insecure, indeed. Yeah. Excepting for perhaps Russia. So I think the system of alliances, there's real re-evaluation at the level of the WHO and at the level of Chimerica, both as causes for... So, sorry, another reason the cause... Uh, the system of alliances in the sense of Chimerica seems to have caused the lockdown or, or caused the, some crises associated with the lockdown is the sort of breaking up of supply chains so that you have uh, so many of the ingredients, personal protective equipment and so on being made outside of what people call the West. Sorry, I'm hearing some noises through the window. <laughs> yes, so, uh, yeah. excited, excited uh, nieces and nephews. The picnickers have returned, indeed. So, so the, the that that breakdown, that sort of passing a part of the supply chain, <coughs> left a lot of uh, North American and European countries at a, at their wits' end, trying to get PPE and testing kits and, uh, and ventilators when they thought that was really important. And so they were forced to buy on often donations or kind of dodgy deals from China that uh, ended up not being up to their standards and had to be junked. So. So yeah. a whole bunch of early stories as Europe was hitting the wave that, um, you know, stuff they got from China had to be thrown out because it was really bad quality. And I think that's part of the story that officials were thinking about, but that they weren't talking about at the time. When officials opted for the lockdown, part of the reason they must have thought that that was the right call is that they knew it would be difficult for them to get uh, the relevant kit. And so they were all the more worried about an early peak saturating hospital capacity, making it difficult for people <coughs> to deal with what they had to deal with. So in that sense, I mean, I think that's a lesser issue, but I do think it's a small part of the issue and it's, it's, it sort of has this echo with World War One. But my favorite, yeah, my yeah, favorite I've, place that, uh, something we've talked I've, about that, uh, which is in line with this is logistics, is sort of yes. having high versus low logistical capacity and that being the difference between winning and losing wars and that's a great lesson of World War One. 
Now, the next thing is the race nationalist aspect, which I, which I feel has flared up in South Africa in the most obvious ways, right? You have Nkosuzana Dlamini Zuma saying we need to commit class suicide. You've got Julius Malema now saying that we need to return to level five. And by the way, if there's one message I can get through in my podcast and my writing is that people need to be taking very seriously the thought that we could have a grand opening and then a grand closing and go back to level four by the end of the month. Um, yeah, Julius Malema has asked for things before, said, like, he got it. Yeah, the government has also continuously expressed this idea in uh, all of their policy documents of saying uh, in situations where we are under extreme threat, we may need to return to higher levels of lockdown. Um, uh, they even had it in a, uh, they've given several presentations uh, where, that, where that piece of information was contained. So there's nothing to say that they won't do it except sort of the constraints of reality. Dude, and uh, tell me that there's not a more perfect analog in history for that than the battle called the Somme being the catastrophe, catastrophe that it was and then and then ordering it again because you have to act as if it worked because otherwise you have to face yourself and face your critics and admit that the mass sacrifice option did not work. <laughs> well, I mean, I, th- I don't think that, you know, in, in thinking about the Somme, uh, I think it is, is also applicable to here in the sense that it, uh, it wasn't just that they couldn't admit that it was wrong. I think a lot of people at the time kind of realized it was wrong. It's just that they they didn't believe there was anything else that could work. And you had to do something. You have to do something. And so, you know, well, if we go out of the trenches every single day, one day we'll get through. Um, and it's the same with the lockdown. If we go, if we lock down hard enough and long enough, eventually we'll kill this thing, even if we don't do it the first time. Yeah. And that's sort of not seeing the third option. It is a good case because the Germans eventually did see the third option with their sort of nighttime blitzes, their reconfiguration of how infantry and artillery cooperate so yeah. that you have instead of sort of uh, as at the Somme, you try and shell them for five days with hundreds of tons of thousands of tons of, of, of explosives and then stop and then send your men in uh, to avoid friendly fire. <coughs> The Germans figured out you really just want the artillery kind of lobbing over your own infantry's heads as they're going forward. Yeah. Because the main difference that the shells make is it makes people bunker down. Exactly. So the the analog here is that um, the third option is the is the call up is moving the intangible hand of esteem, and I'm so glad that our listeners are are some of them are taking Philip Pettit seriously. We got an email from one listener to say that he had gone and purchased The Economy of Esteem by Jeffrey Brennan and Philip Pettit, uh, sort of as Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations was to the free market, so this book aims to be to the study of kudonomics, great science of the 21st century. So yeah, it's, it's worth a read. <coughs> and glad to hear that we're getting some feedback. And that is what the Far East countries seem to show us, uh, is that uh, if you rely heavily on voluntarism, then, then you can do pretty well. But so that's part of why I think that there's this subterranean sort of connection between race nationalism. Like, it's not that just we, that race nationalists are calling for a lockdown here because they explicitly want to destroy white monopoly capital. It's also that I think race nationalism is connected to the rise of race nationalism is connected to the ways that we haven't thought about the, the sort of esteem intangible hand option. 
Uh, and when I say we, I mean the kind of elites who are in charge, the CDCs in the US and the UK and France and Germany and so on, who, <coughs> who, who seem to have opted increasingly for lockdowns rather than call-ups, which uh, seem to be similarly effective at delaying the virus, but dissimilarly effective at destroying the economy. And it seems that they chose the worst option. Increasingly, it seems to me, and I've been reading <coughs> quite a lot of German news, been trying to go through the British transcripts of their kind of command council's decision-making processes from early January on how to respond to the virus. Uh, and this sort of echo from Niall Ferguson's famous paper that produced the lockdown seems to resonate that uh, a lot of decision makers <coughs> just seem to discount the possibility, just seem to not take seriously the thought that uh, voluntary action would achieve yeah. anything like the same level of social distancing, but at a much higher productive capacity. And you know, and just who, uh, it. Uh, you know who, who warned us of this was, of course, the great prophet Hayek. <laughs> who warned about planners in all parties um, yeah. because planners love to move chase, uh, people about like chessmen on a board and assume that they, they don't move unless exactly. you move them. Um, exactly. And this is once exactly again, <laughs> we have, you know, it, you, you'd think that humanity would figure it out after the first couple of times that this happened. Uh, but when we do extreme centralized planning where we uh, get rid of human incentives and human agency, we get disastrous results every single time. Yeah, you treat a human being like a virus or an ant or a, an asteroid or some other unthinking, destructive potential thing that needs force to be constrained. And <clears throat> that's kind of the result you get. Mm. So, and that sounds like World War I to me, man. That sounds like one of the great lessons of World War I is like that those in charge were treating their peoples like ants, like yeah. chess pieces. Those are exactly the metaphors that were being used. And I, and I take your point about the poets maybe distorting our view. But I hope you'll take mine that sometimes poets uh, strike to the spirit of, a, of, of, of an era. Yeah, well, they, or, it, they certainly captured how we would uh, feel about it afterwards, after we had had some time to digest and look at the world as it was afterwards. Um, I mean, at the time it was sold as the war to save Christian civilization, uh, at least by the Allies and by the Germans yeah. too you know, protect the fatherland. Uh, and then when they realized that Christian civilization was basically the same as it was before and that the fatherland was very much not protected, it made people a little bit bitter. And so that's one of the things that I worry about a lot. Is that, um, at the start of last year, well, no, at the start of this year, end of last year, I found it increasingly difficult not to think of South Africa in in longer historical terms than I'd engaged in before. Like, I'd always thought that in this decade we have to bounce back. And it's just a question of how hard we drive down before we do that. But one of the things about World War One is that it produced errors that persisted for a century. In Russia, in China, um, in Germany, it didn't last as long, <coughs> but it was so bad that it might as well have uh, lasted an eternity. Uh, and, I, and, and I think that is sort of when looking at the political consequences of COVID, I suppose I'm asking you a little bit to put your World War One hat on or to throw it off, put another hat on and kind of see and see and see what lies ahead of us through that lens. Well, 
I mean, <laughs> the obvious thing is, uh, you know, if we had just had, if we were just coming out of a world war right now, I'd say the next thing to expect is a virus. Um, <laughs> but we seem to have done those in the back in the in the wrong way around um you know the moment i saw like economies and stuff tanking i thought to myself uh this is this is going to be the catalyst for a decade of chaos like the world system has been shaken up uh and we're going to see i think a lot of a lot of a lot of conflict um and a lot of uh It'll be a it'll be a time of movement that'll make the previous sort of thirty years since the end of the Cold War look very static by comparison. I think. Um, yeah. So yeah. that means you're going to have ideologues attempting grand projects, uh, like the race nationalists probably will give it a bash here. Um, you're going to see maybe conflict open or cold between the U.S. and China. Um, yeah. You're going to see a lot of dislocation and. You know, in 10, 20 years from now, the world is probably going to look very, very different. It feels a bit like that to me, too. And one of the things that I kind of feel like marking at this point is, is the, are the sort of weirder esteem teams that have been built. So an esteem team, it's sort of where you have some measure of, of, of coolness, of kudos, and <clears throat> the closer you are to the center, the more you get out of the team. But sort of whenever anyone in the team gets kudos, we all get kudos. And whenever anyone gets dissed, we all get dissed. And, you know, so one of the great esteem team uh, changes in the last decade has been Donald Trump. Like, he is such a magnet for esteem thinking. You're either for Trump or you're against Trump. And if you're against Trump, then you measure everyone else by how against Trump they are. Yeah. <laughs> vice versa. And, and, and I think we, in talking about esteem, that's one of the things we try to sort of kit people out to avoid the trappings of trench, sort of things like Trump derangement syndrome, either on the pro or the anti side. So, so I mean, that's not the only one. Brexit was certainly that for the UK. Uh, you're either for or against, and then everything else kind of fits to that rather than yeah, that. No other opinions do. matter. Once, <laughs> if, once you know someone's against Brexit, if you're for it, then you're like, ah. Oh. It's it's like that joke about a Jewish guy going to um, Northern Ireland during the Troubles, and he goes into a bar, and then the guy says, "Are you are you a Catholic or Protestant?" And he says, "I'm Jewish." And he says, "Yeah, but are you a Catholic Jew or a Protestant Jew?" You've got a with with an accent. <laughs> You're are you Catholic, a Catholic Jew or a Protestant Jew? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, dude, that that captures it exactly. So, so I think that there's a new one on the block now. I mean, we've yeah. been talking about this since before it happened. But it's like, are you for the lockdown or are you against the lockdown? And I think one of the things that I saw increasingly this week and that I've seen increasingly for the last month is people come out and say I'm against the lockdown. Now, yeah. some of those people are clearly in an esteemed derangement syndrome. They yes. are so committed to out-competing each other for being anti-lockdown that they sort of want to have orgies and wear no masks and accuse people. I don't know if you saw Belgium just banned orgies. No non-essential sex with more than three people indoors. That's how they put it. Um, so I'm not sure if that's a real... <laughs> I mean, that's a real thing, but I don't know how real. But there is definitely a real thing in the US of people doing this esteem thing of driving themselves around the, the crazy bend 
by trying to outperform being anti-lockdown. But on the pro-lockdown side, dude, there was some there sorry. was some some stories of like uh, uh, people going a, a guy going to fumigate houses, and some people told him, "No, I'm not letting you into my house because you're wearing a mask, and that means that you're uh, a slave to the lockdown." Oh my god, <laughs> Nicholas, what a human being, man. That Stupid. is. <laughs> We are monkeys that have only just crawled out the trees, eh? Jesus. No, very disappointing. It's very disappointing. So, I, it's, okay. So, but I just want to talk about the pro-lockdown guys because I have been sort of writing about this and dealing with this a little bit. And I know yeah. I've spoken about it before, but I'm just going to wrap up my beef with Max Price, the most famous data scientist and doctor in the country, who was the former chancellor, vice chancellor of the University of Cape Town. You, you managed so, to point into uh, writing a rebuttal on the Daily Friend to your to your arguments. Yeah. Got, a, got us a few thousand uh, visits to very, the site. Very, 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 very good work, if I do say so myself. Please, everyone, read the Daily Friend. It really, I really have been proud to to be there. Like the, Every day that I look there, I'm happy to see what I see, including your histories. I love the thing about ah. Joan of Arc, Nick. I think you wrote Thank it you. very well. Thank you. <laughs> Um, okay, but so here's my beef with Max Price. So, and it's not just with him. It's with at least it's with the head epidemiologist running the consortium. It's with uh, two ministers that I have on record. It's with at least another epidemiologist. It's on one with one presidential advisor on record and a couple of others who are off record. Is this way of thinking where they trust the testing data in March and April and early April? They really believe it, right? And they've been using it to insist that the rate of reproduction in the country for the virus was three. Every person who gets it is infecting three people and that the lockdown brought it to 1.3. Yeah. But I've gone back and I've looked over their interviews for the last month and a half. And I've been dealing with this issue directly with Max Price. And they all say that this started happening, including, I cannot believe this, Dr. Kalim, Karim, who's the head of epidemiologist running this and was the very first person I spoke to, highly recommended to me as the sort of greatest thinker in the country on this topic. They've all been saying, look, the rate of the curve flattened immediately from March 27th, from day one of the lockdown. Which doesn't make any sense at all. And they all know and they and the data shows that it flattened then more than it's ever flattened before. It flattened to R below one. We actually flattened the curve. We actually reduced it if you believe the data. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to get to whether you should believe the data. But if you be believe the data and they insist that you must believe the data from that period, then we flatten the curve by March 27, from March 27 through April 7, through April 6, April 7, April 8. And then it starts lifting up again, April 9, April 10. Now, here's the thing. They also all say, including Max Price, that any change you make to social behavior is going to show up in the testing at a 10 days delay. Yeah, there's a little bit of a there's a little bit of some wires here, not quite, you know, connecting properly. <laughs> not quite connecting. So they're saying, look, the lockdown worked because it immediately <laughs> flattened the curve, and then, by the way, ten days later, the curve got steeper again. Yes. And here's what they all overlook: when, when, in the period that the curve flattened. If you look at that 10 days when the seven days when eight days when the curve flattened, and you look what is happening at a 10 day delay before, delay before that, it was the call up. 
It is the 10 days between March 15th when Ramaphosa makes his grand state of de declaration of a state of disaster. Every uh, leader of parliament follows him up in echoing his Tumamina call. He calls it the greatest call on me moment in South Africa's history for mass volunteerism. Business needs to change. Consumers need to change. People at home need to change. Old people need to change. We, Everyone needs to change. The IRR were pretty, uh, pretty soft compared to how we usually are. We, uh, we did support that he had some difficult decisions to make um, and that he needed help in making them. Dude, we were super keen. We, yeah. we were like, I remember us being, yeah, it was It was like, um, I imagine thinking if I was in the presidency, giving him the report on what does the media think, be like, dude, even the IRR is being like super supportive right now. Yeah. And you would have thought, well, I must be doing something right. Right is vanity again. Anyway. Uh, so, so the data, if you believe the data, if you believe our testing numbers went up and down because our case numbers went up and down so that the actual case numbers that you're seeing shows the real rate of infection at the time, which is what they all insist you must believe, then you must also believe that the virus flattened, the, the, the viral spread curve flattened to below one uh, exactly during the call-up and then started increasing exactly as soon as the lockdown was implemented, and then increased to R equals 1.3, maybe higher. Well, sorry, yeah. R equals 1.3, maybe higher. <coughs> so either they believe their own data, in which case they're for the call-up, and, they, and they've got to say that we were actually working with the call-up, and then the lockdown screwed it up, and we started spreading the virus exponentially. We have to think about why. <laughs> and if they were to start thinking about why, they'd maybe say, well, look, we crushed the economy so badly that people went into hunger queues and starvation mobs, that in those hunger queues, they waited for UIF payouts and promised extra grants payouts for days and days. And you can see the queues line up for kilometers around the country. And at many of them, there was no social distancing. And uh, then they didn't even get payment because of, often the sort of government turned around and say, no, this was just a test run. We're going to actually start doing the payments later. That would be one of the problems. The mobs are obviously another problem. Another problem is that... Uh, once taxis sort of pulled down their capacity and sanitized, which, yeah, dude, they really were doing, a lot of them were doing, not all of them were doing, but a lot of them really were doing during the call-up period. Uh, people are relatively safe on their way to work. And then when they're at work, it's relatively easy because there's functions to do to kind of split people up and keep them at a social distance. But without work, people are forced to just amble about the streets and either hustle if they're desperate or pay visits if they're not. And that's exactly what I saw and what we talked about throughout well, level we five saw, and before lockdown. We also saw just as the lockdown begins, you know, half the country flee to other provinces uh, and shuffle about and go through uh, rest stops and crowd so together in exactly taxis. Why you, that's yeah. why you can't believe the testing data, because the testing data says April 5th, you had the lowest rate of reproduction. But April 5th comes 10 days after you know, when it's telling you that actually happened, the spread slowed the most, was <coughs> March 24th through March 26th, when Google mobility data is showing you that we were visiting grocery stores like 60% uh, more often than we do on an average day, and retailers, all other kinds of things. We were flooding those places in thick queues to go and buy the stuff. So you can't believe the testing data. So I argue independent of our testing data, which I say is untrustworthy. By the way, the reason they have to say the testing data is trustworthy, it's obviously a huge embarrassment to them because as soon as anyone actually starts thinking about it, and none of the journalists that have interviewed them have started thinking about it, about the delay between the change 
in the societal pattern and when the testing data is going to change. Even though they all mention it, none of the journalists ask them about it when they say, well, the lockdown had immediate effect. But the reason that they, they keep insisting the testing data was good is that if you look at how it's not good, it's not good because it plummeted precipitously after the lockdown. Even yeah. if you average it out on a seven-day rolling average, even if you shift data around in a sort of relatively arbitrary way, as Max Price say, suggested that you do, you still find South Africa gets, gets the gold medal for being the only country in the world that locked down the country to slow down testing. So they can't <laughs> admit that. Well, I don't know if we no, they committed to the country. testing working, but that commits them to the call-up working and not the lockdown. So they sort of just have this logical inconsistency where they say the lockdown worked. So, so I feel like we've got generals who really are like the generals who ordered the Battle of the Somme, and they're insisting that it worked, and and that it is here about ego, and it is about a reluctance amongst key advisors to face the, their own facts. Like, this is not a disagreement of opinion. If you believe their, their version of the facts, the testing was reliable, then the call-up worked. If you believe the testing wasn't reliable and you just look at mobility data, quality of exchanges, and so on, international precedent set by call-up countries versus lockdown countries, then the call-up comes out equal to the lockdown. And especially if you go for overall excess deaths, the call-up looks much better because in the yep. lockdown you have a lot more people dying of other things. So it's like... It's 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 very straightforward to me that the generals actually running this country, whose hands hold the fates of the lives of millions, are sort of thinking with their esteem goggles on, rather than brains. Well, I'm I'm sorry. And to feels so World War One, dude. After, I feel like after a, that feel, after that very impassioned speech, I'm sorry to pour water on it, but what did you expect? <laughs> What have we seen from our leadership you in the past grimy, grimy. ten years? <laughs> that has that has that should give anyone any confidence in anything they do because it has been, uh, you know, we just the stakes haven't been so high up till now. This was in many ways a very real test of the ANC. I mean, they've managed to crawl on without a super huge crisis um, for at least ten years, um, and now suddenly. They had to face it. Our media had to face it. Our intelligentsia had to face it. And most of them have come up really short. Uh, and this is why you can't sort of play games with, um, you know, all the things we were doing, all the luxuries and the self-indulgent projects South Africa had running, like BEE and, uh, you know, all this corruption and uh, our kind of stupid yeah. economic <laughs> policy. Because one day, the debts are going to come to you. Yeah. yeah. And have been able to get ESCOM for free and not building power plants and all these fun things. Uh, because one day the debts are going to come due and then you're going to really, really feel it. Yeah. Yeah. Dude, but again, isn't that such a World War One story? And yes. let's put it in World War One terms. <clears throat> the generals who ordered the song, one of the big problems was in the sense that uh, the British military system was sort of caste-based, kind of race-based, class-based, you know, hereditary. Right. So you had to kind of be of noble birth to have an easy walk in to the commanding ranks. Yeah, you, you could, were not you of could, noble birth. You could birth. get in from, from the lower ranks. It just wasn't as easy if you were. Like, yeah. yeah. It is significantly harder. And <clears throat> much like here, yeah, right? With our kind of <clears throat> anti competitive laws about uh, uh, employment and sort of effective norms when it comes to cabinet and appointments and stuff. And the fact that if your 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 name is Susulu, you get to be the speaker of the house and the uh, minister of or whatever she is now, 
Um, <laughs> you know, political dynasties run deep in this country. I should know. Yeah. I'm from one. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Okay. So, so I love that. I love that little self chirp there. <laughs> but having the kind of hard rule written into the law, rather than just having this be a kind of one of the competing forces. You know, where people who've kind of grown up with their parents yeah. being politicians are more likely to know how to, to navigate the ropes. That that programs for a less efficient uh, system. It's it's and, and this is such an esteem point, right? It's not just that you are narrowing your pool of selection. That's really not the problem with BEE. It's really not the primary problem with um, with the sort of British aristocratic system in their military costs. The fundamental problem is that the rules for promotion or demotion, or sort of hitting a glass ceiling, are partly defined by how committed you are to that particular way of esteeming people. Exactly. So, if it, you're it a changes. British gentleman, you have to be very for, you have to sort of, we all have to know he's one of us, and you'd never really let a peasant rise above the ranks unless yeah. he absolutely had to. And, and it's all about, uh, you know, showing for the team and becoming... Sorry, what's the word I'm looking for? It's it's all about it's all about loyalty to the to the regime, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. Uh, if Rather than if, genuine criticism, open debate, the fierce fire of inquiry, and so on. Which is which is and one of the reasons that communism also didn't work really, right? Because uh, yeah. everyone had to be loyal to the party, and that was the most important thing. And then everyone who was running everything was an idiot. That's the kind of thing that defines you. Just like with the Trump derangement syndrome, you have sort of communist derangement syndrome. Or you, you either super for it or super against it. And some of the guys who are against it also really screwed up. Uh, the Nazis at some point in the in the 20s sort of, <coughs> I think one of the, they, they had a dark hour where the thing that kind of tided them over was just how anti-communist you were. And the brown shirts were kind of the best at beating up the communists in the streets. And, they, and their form of insanity sort of survived by just having this commitment to everything is judged by one thing. And, like, I am a fierce opponent of communism. But, you know, you can't – just because someone else is a fierce opponent of communism doesn't mean that you automatically credit them with things that they don't deserve uh, in real time. But if you do make that mistake – uh, of, of of exaggerating the thought that the enemy of my enemy is my friend, then you can find yourself allied with true evil quite easily. Exactly. Exactly. So, so, so. But, but worse than that, not just allied to true evil, but making excuses for true evil. Yeah. Yeah. So I, dude, I agree with you. I think another political consequence is that. <coughs> Of, of, of the post-COVID regime is 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 going to be, I don't know how America is going to fall on this line, but I think that there's going to be a lot of pressures towards thinking that real politic uh, is extremely important. Mm. The kind of defensive response to World War One, in some ways was kind of drawing, drawing, drawing out the the worst sides of nationalism. Like, you, you thought they'd come, but the fear was pacifism or internationalism or humanism were somehow worse. They set you up for weakness. That's how Germany was taken, uh, or that's how the English side took so long to actually win, was that somehow they'd been driven into decadence by, yeah. by 
by softies and socialists. By humanism, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I think this is, I think we've got a major problem for humanism, uh, cosmopolitanism, and old age homes. And I think they kind of exemplify it. Like, if you look at America, you want, you know, why has America got so many more deaths? It seems like a lot of it has to do with the fact that they drove people out of hospitals into old age homes. Because of New York, the, uh, which is where a disproportionate number of America's casualties come from. And then in the old age homes, they weren't properly tended to, and they spread the disease readily to other elderly people who have the highest uh, infection fatality ratio. And you add that all up, and, you know, in the next couple of decades, I don't know, if I just look at the WhatsApp groups I'm on and the, and the sort of 60-pluses that I've been talking to, a lot of them seem really stoked about what their lives have been like during the lockdown. Uh, a little bit more quiet, a little bit more me time, kind of a little bit more healthful, especially the ones in the middle classes who've been able to afford forms of exercise and mm. sort of digital-based stimulation. Uh, and that's kind of the class that you look at when you think of uh, sort of people who can afford to go to old age homes, particularly on the end where they're kind of, you know, they're afford enough to rich enough to kind of afford a middle class lifestyle, but they can't quite afford sort of live in help and yeah, to to retire to a Nisner estate or something. Exactly, but I think people are going to be all the more keen not to do that now. When you when you look at this thing, uh, and and I think that I I don't know. I suppose you know old age homes are a tricky thing. I think a lot of people. They carry in the Hollywood sort of view of things a very negative cachet. But mm. I've made my visits, and I know, and I'm very close to, with some people for for my whole life who've, who've sort of lived in old homes. And I think that there is something very charming about uh, people of a similar cohort hanging out together, sort of finding the same things entertaining, being yeah, on they, the same. They, they are a unique cultural space. They, they do have their yeah. own very unique uh, culture and feeling to them, and some of them have quite pleasant atmospheres. Uh, some of them don't. <laughs> but, For sure. Yeah. Especially in this country and everywhere as well. But but I think it's, it's it feels kind of, I don't know. I just, I, I, I've been, I've been listening to and imagining sort of 70-year-olds now pulling out of that kind of plan and, and, and sort of, I don't know, just mourning in a way, uh, somewhat of an erasure of this cultural space that I think was a sort of easy thing to take for granted as one of the boons of Pax Americana and of the sort of triumph over fascism and, and communism is the sort of, you know, we got to the point where we were generating enough surplus that you could not so much that we became decadent, but, but enough that, you know, you, people could find this, this way of hanging out together where at a, at a property level, there's great economies of scale. And at a social level, there's what you might call economies of scale too. You know, there's sort of, uh, as you say, you can make a culture out of it. You can, it's like a church yeah. or a park or a, or a sandpit or, exactly. or a theater, however sophisticated, whatever you want to make it. And, and that in theaters feel like, feel like two, two things that are going to be harder to navigate going forward because we've had a lockdown. Like if we didn't have a lockdown, we just had a call up, we could be having frank conversations for the last couple of months about 
how to deal with theatres and how to deal with old age homes and how to deal with these particularly physically close spaces, while at the same time having governments run their true competencies of managing health and education and borders uh, support, while 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 most of the hard lift heavy lifting gets left to us figuring out whether we want to go to a restaurant or not and how we want to do it and how grocery stores should be run and how factories can be run at two-thirds capacity and so on. And instead, we've sort of missed out on some of those conversations in ways that I think have have poured acid into some of those cultural institutions that, that some of them are not going to recover from. Yes, um, but that's part of what causes the dislocation, right, uh, that we talked about at the beginning here um, or just, just now, is that, you know, when you do have a shakeup like this, institutions die and collapse and uh, you have to you have to find new ways things are going to fall apart and hopefully new and better things will take their place but um that's yeah it's we've got to navigate that world could take some time okay nick i've got a particular question for you <laughs> yes sir. i kind of smuggled it into what i just said but so you know the three buckets the kind of do nothing approach where sick people are still going to work the lockdown approach where the government uses the iron fist is force people into that and then the third option is you've got a call up you know one of the things that goes into the call up is the there are regulations there there is border control there is bans on land gatherings maybe um there is contact tracing and high testing and beefing up health systems maybe um sweden's done less of that which i think is a little bit part of why it hasn't outperformed yes. taiwan and japan but then there is this thing of school closures and we saw uh, South Korea closed down its schools, uh, sorry, reopened its schools and then closed <laughs> down in one pretty large area another couple of hundred schools again after two days of being open because they just found one mother and child who'd been infected. <coughs> so South Africa's opening up schools. I just got a message to say it looks like, you know, we, we all knew Jan June 1st, it's just going to be matrix in grade sevens, but now it looks like it's going to be a month delay and then the next half, you know, grade, grade 10, 11, grade 10 and 11 and four, five, six can go back. And then another month, August, uh, everyone else can go back. I'm imagining a lot of the sort of anti-lockdown people are feeling very grim about that. They kind of want schools to open up all at once. I'm imagining pro-lockdown people are feeling a bit grim about that. They're kind of you know, feeling like, why are we opening up at all? Especially, we started this podcast with a fun fact that we've got the highest case fatality, uh, sorry, the highest uh, case infection ratio at the moment. Um, where are you sitting on this sort of school situation? Uh, look, I mean, so I'm usually a bit of a catastrophist, and I think that uh, everything is a disaster all the time. Um, <laughs> well, uh, and so in the right country, Brad. Yeah, I've I've I've, I've taken. <laughs> You're going to be that thing. broken clock. You've come to the right time. <laughs> I've taken uh, uh, this thing pretty seriously from the beginning, and I know there's there's quite a lot of uh, you know scientific evidence suggesting that children are not huge vectors of this thing. I just worry when it comes to schools that you know, in in terms of signalling to the population that the call up is necessary and that uh, you know we really need to take everything seriously. Uh, you know, properly and do what we can, uh, keeping schools closed or at least severely limited is a really big part of that psychologically. Um, and that a lot of people, you know, because people are getting fatigued by all this hand washing and mask wearing and all that, 
Um, yeah. That if you if you if you say, ah, oh, well, the doors are open until they get like a friend of theirs who gets sick or something, they're probably some people are going to relax. They're going to take the foot off the gas and chill out. So, you know, and also, you know, I think it's too early to tell uh, whether kids are big vectors and stuff of these diseases. We've been wrong a lot in this pandemic about stuff. So, like, for example, the Center for Disease Control has said that uh, surfaces are actually not a huge spreader of the virus, which is contrary to all of the early messaging, which was very anti-mask and pro-hand washing. Um, and now we seem to be moving towards more pro-mask and, uh, and less focus on hand washing. So I'd really be nervous about making a like hard and fast call right now about, oh, no, it doesn't affect the kids at all. Just open the schools. Um, also, you know, when kids go to school, most of the time, uh, they have some sort of adult transporting them around. Um, yeah. And those adults are out and about the house and they may be stopping for petrol somewhere and they may be, you know, uh, they think, oh, I'll just pop into the shops here or maybe I'll go hang out here, you know, with someone else. And, and maybe, they're, point, <laughs> maybe they're in a taxi or a train with lots of other adults anyway, where yeah. the difference between that taxi or train being sort of three quarters full and full or half full and three quarters full is the difference between those kids being in that right. little box you know human beings we just get around in boxes yeah. uh, through the transport system and there's a certain number of boxes so so my general feeling is that you should probably open the schools basically last <laughs> out of everything um i think that basically everything should be open except maybe movie theaters and the schools uh and, and rock concerts. I, I feel like yeah, unfortunately and, 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 one, and my oldest friend is a rock musician and sometimes he listens to this and he's going to hate this but like I do <laughs> kind of feel like they and sports and live sports events yeah. in stadiums come last because dude I've been to those things and they're slobbery affairs they're not as bad as the Belgian orgy which has just been banned but they're pretty <laughs> Belgians um. <laughs> yeah but schools should be so schools should be before that but not before I feel yeah. hairdressers for example, yeah. and it's not all, and it's not even just about picking apart hairdressers. So, so you know, a lot of the work that we've been doing in the last couple of weeks has been lobbying for the schools to reopen after the rest of the economy, and that is, I feel like that is an unpopular position, especially yeah. amongst people who are anti-lockdown, which we are anti-lockdown. I mean, I am, I'm on the front lines there trying to trying to hash it out with with Max Price and presidential advisors and whomever I can sort of get my grips into and saying lockdown is bad. But I think the schools need to stay closed. Uh, and and maybe the way we're doing it is a reasonable way. One of my worries is that as soon as you open up for matrix, so one of the things if you're just opening up for matrix in a high school is that you've got all these classrooms. If you've got 50 people per classroom, now you can use the rest of the classrooms and the rest of the staff to divide it up. But you do have all of the staff you've kind of got all of the teachers going back to work, excepting for the nursery school teachers and maybe some of the grade two, three, four, five, and six teachers. Mm. But the high schools, they're subject teachers, so you're kind of going to have to have all the teachers there. And if you're going to split the classes to reduce transmission in the school, then you're going to have to have all the teachers there. So it's still a hell of a lot to be reintroducing all at the same time as everything else. And here's the thing about kids being vectors of this disease. I've now read two studies, one from uh, Geneva, Switzerland, and one from the U.S., finding that children are just like adults at shedding the virus. What does that mean? 
In adults, the primary distinction is between symptomatics and asymptomatics. Why is that? It's because symptoms are also mechanisms for transferring the disease, for, for viral when shedding. You, when you cough, you it's spray virus cough, out of your face. Yeah. Explosive sneezes, those all radically increase your, your attack rate or your, or your um, infection rate per contact. So children seem to have, if they are symptomatic, they seem to have the same infection rate per contact as adults. In other words, if they've got the virus and it's making them sneeze and cough, they'll sneeze and cough just like adults. Now, they get symptomatic much less than adults, but adults also already get uh, asymptomatic most of the time. Most adults seem to be asymptomatic. Let's say between 60 and 80 percent, probably 80 percent. So for children to, to be sort of 90 percent, it's not that big a difference. Yeah. The second thing is that of the asymptomatics, if you actually get it, then... The children who've got it but aren't showing symptoms and the adults who've got it and aren't showing symptoms seem to shed the virus at the same rate. These are sort of laboratory experiments that have been done, as well as retrospective analyses of indexes. Indexes being sort of, you know, situations where you can pretty much isolate that this person is the one who infected the, those other persons hard yeah. as it were. Yeah. So, it, so the upshot is this. It might be if there's a natural immunity factor to take into consideration here, yeah, and Oxford is sort of suggesting that it might be from 10 to 60% of the population doesn't even get it, right? So they're not yeah, asymptomatic. So they've got, it's yeah, like they've the virus. Got some kind of, of uh, previous immunity previous. from like another coronavirus, because coronaviruses yeah. are actually not that well studied. So, the, so that's a huge unknown. But if you assume that's evenly spread across adults and children, then what you're left with in terms of the sort of known unknowns or the or the sort of relatively known knowns is that adults uh, are more likely to be asymptomatic than symptomatic, but that most spreading of the virus happens through asymptomatic cases. So there's a lower conversion ratio, but they have more contact because they don't realize that they're sick. Yeah, they're walking yeah. around <laughs> and they're hanging out like normal. And children have the same split. Uh, uh, in, in 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 the sense that there are fewer children who are asymptomatic, I mean, who are symptomatic, but if you look at the symptomatics versus the asymptomatics, it looks like they've they've got the same pattern. The symptomatics of children are the same as the symptomatics of adults, and the asymptomatics of children are the same as the asymptomatics of adults. So you add that together and you look at sort of modeling studies in uh, advanced countries with old populations. And I found a couple that sort of think school closures bring down the rate of reproduction by 10 to 20 percent. Yeah, that that makes complete sense to me. Um, In South Africa, we need to pull every lever that we can that isn't wrecking the economy. And yeah. bringing down R by 10 to 20 percent could could make a huge difference. Now, just to give a sense of things, people... I think who aren't worried about the lockdown coming back, partly is because they think the lockdown is stupid, partly is because they think the virus doesn't matter. Now, look, if we've got 60% natural immunity, then we are fine. The super young population combined with that means that we probably are peaking anyway. We've had exponential growth anyway. We're going to peak and then it's going to dip in the next couple of weeks. But if That's that natural immunity is not as high as, if, if, if the natural immunity is as low as, as most people think it is, then look at our numbers. Ramaphosa last week said we've got 12,000 infections. I spoke to, as we talked about last week, epidemiologists said we've got 60, 16 times more than that. So that's between 80,000 and 200,000 infections as of last week. Uh, our growth has been exponential. Looks like R at 1.3, but I think it's higher. Here's why. 
If you look at our testing through May, we doubled on a seven-day rolling average from 9,000 tests, very steadily climbing up. That seven-day rolling average just crawls up neatly up to 18,000. So from 9,000 tests a day to 18,000 tests a day, maybe 20,000 tests a day by now. I looked at the data two days ago, last time I checked properly. At the same time, the positivity ratio, which is the portion of tests that are coming out positive, went from 2.5% to 3.8%. So we're doubling our tests, but even we're nearly doubling the rate at which tests are coming out positive. That strongly indicates that, you know, that 6 to 16 uncertainty factor of how many cases do we have on record versus how many cases do we actually have. It's looking more like 16 based on the increase in the positivity ratio together with the increase in the testing. That means we could almost already have a million tests. I mean, a million cases. Uh, sorry, we, we could almost already have... 500 cases by now and we could have a million cases 14 days after that maybe even less and then 2 million cases another 14 days after that so we could have 4 million cases by the end of june or maybe we could have 1 million cases by the end of june at the very least if we don't increase the rate of infection because of the increased transport for a couple of days and the alcohol binges and the kind of laxity now that the lockdown's lifted <laughs> people forget the call up so they just put yeah. Even if it doesn't increase and we're relatively on the lower end, we still could get to a million cases by the end of June. And even though we've got a young population, that means, you know, if only 5% rather than 20% of those people need to be hospitalized, what's 5% of a million? It's 15,000 hospitalizations. Okay, bring it down further because you say a million cases on the lower end, those are not all active cases. If you say it's only 700,000 active cases, it's still 40,000 people needing to go to hospital in a couple of weeks. Our hospital system, it's not going to be evenly spread everywhere. Some of it's going to be concentrated here and there. You're going to get Italian-style hospitals, and then you're going to get a, a, a return to level four or level five. And, and, and so I'm saying we need to do what we can to slow down the spread of the virus while keeping the economy alive, partly to save the spread of the virus and partly to save the economy. And we can't get to a level four, level five situation because that means that people are dying for no good reason. It means the hospitals are overwhelmed. People who would not die are going to die just because the hospital is overwhelmed. It means the economy is going to shut down and people are going to die because they get impoverished or die younger than they otherwise would have. So we really need to avoid that. And I think that retarding the opening of schooling, it's very harsh. And here I am, a 30-year-old, and you're 25, and we can both still remember what it is like to be in school. And we know how important it is to learn. But yes, yeah. I think yeah. a couple of weeks, a couple of months to, I, you know, that does seem the fact that if you look through the last hundred years, school closures have been the number one kind of go-to. And the fact that in the call-up countries, they've been a, a regular go-to, I think is a strong indicator that on this one, you know, the government is irrational on e-commerce. It is irrational on BE. It is irrational on open-toed shoes and T-shirts that aren't branded. But I think... Maybe being hesitant about the school thing is rational. I think if there's a criticism from my side, it's that they're not allowing schools to make the choices for themselves. Some schools yes, that have been doing distance learning nicely might like to have, you know, these grades come in Monday, Tuesday, those grades come in Wednesday, those grades come in Thursday, Friday, because they're keeping them all going anyway. And they, then they can use that time especially well to get the positive benefits of actual face-to-face -face interactions. And you imagine Model C schools, Greenside, Cares, Park, Parktown Boys, Bryanston High, those kinds of schools. Yeah. You can imagine they might be able to pull some of that off, you know. 
They might get some benefits out there. At least that you want the parents and the staff in charge of that decision. This 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 whole experience has shown us that decentralization has extreme benefits in improving uh, uh, outcomes. Uh, Germany, for example, has an extremely decentralized healthcare system, uh, and it does seem to have been something that's helped helped uh, control the thing. Uh, the fact that America has been able to respond in different ways in different states and different counties means that, like for example, Florida, which is reopened from, for the most part uh, from lockdowns. Um, doesn't seem to have had a huge second wave yet, and that's partly because on a county by county basis, they can take uh, whatever ch decisions they need to, in order to uh, to, to combat the yeah. thing or to open up. Oh, the uh, virus more open, big problem. Do a quick little roundup. Yeah, well, we are we we are out of time now. So, what is your final, what is your final message? I think I think you've given them already. Uh, uh, a very powerful message about what uh, policy should be, and I have no doubt that with the great weight that this podcast holds in the government's mind, they will <laughs> they will move to implement it. Yeah, oh, no, I don't know. I think I think well, yeah. My sign of note is just we were we were sitting outside having a picnic, and it was very pretty, and <clears throat> it, it's just sort of reminded me of a scene from a Ford Maddox Ford novel. Where people were hanging, you know, some aristocrats were chilling out during World War One, having a picnic on the cliffs of Dover, and there is something surreal about this. But you know, uh, I think we are going. This, I'm, not, I'm not saying this changes everything. You know, part of the nightmare of World War One, it didn't change everything. Some of the yes. worst ideas just became more popular and dug yeah, their took, cause deeper. Took, took another twenty years and another world war to change everything. Yeah. So. I feel that's that that's the headspace I'm in. I feel like the world has put a gun to its head, it's pulled the trigger, it hasn't thought about voluntarism, it hasn't thought about the economy of esteem, it hasn't thought about how human beings aren't ants, how we reinforce each other in healthful ways, if we trust each other and we trust our governments. And part of the reason is that some governments have just been so untrustworthy and part of it's party politics. And part of it's just this sort of academic lacuna of thought about the economy of esteem, which is just this weird thing that you find across all sociology departments, across criminology, epidemiology, various PhD sort of academic strains uh, seem to have this common problem. And uh, and uh, yeah, and if I've got a hope, it's it really is that that we learn the lesson out of this to to take it seriously. And if I finish off with one thought, it's like you know. Think about how poor our understanding of the esteem economy is. The country that takes it most seriously is China with its social credit system, its centralized social credit system. Now, China didn't pull the a tangible hand lever. You know, Sweden did, Thailand, Taiwan did, Vietnam did, Japan did. But China went for lockdown, hard lockdown, and didn't really leverage the social credit system that much. It did a bit, but not that much. And yet, how many people asked themselves why they were making that decision? Like, they were the paradigm exemplar case. And the fact that we didn't even see them as making that decision. I mean, we did on this show. But the fact that BBC, CNN, New York Times, yeah. even great, even actually really great publications, like The Economist, like The Spectator, like The NR. I don't see them asking that question. Why did China not think, yes, as we've got the most advanced social credit system in the world. Why don't you just rely on that? If, you, if you've if seen out and about. It's such a weird thing. Anyway, so that's me, Nick. How are things in, you sign us off from the big yeah. city? Ah, <laughs> well, I mean, yeah. <laughs> I hope, I hope, I really do hope that, that, uh, 
that our peak comes sooner rather than later um or, or you know in the sense that it's not as bad as it as it, as it could be yeah. um and you know i think i think everyone just should uh, stay safe out there do what you can to look after yourselves uh if you have the option go and enjoy some some, some fun stuff i've been watching um what's it called uh world war Two week by week on the youtube channel just called world war Two. it's for the same guys who did world war one week by week or at least some of the same guys same presenter uh, and that's just great stuff. I'd, I'd highly recommend it. Um, it takes your takes your mind to another time and place where things were were quite grim, but they all seem to get through it anyway. Uh, yes. <laughs> so I'd recommend that. No, much worse. They're definitely much worse. Yes, much worse than this. Uh, and so, um, with that, thanks everyone for listening. Uh, we have seen a couple of your comments, especially the ones praising Gabriel, which have definitely not at all crushed my self esteem. Um, <laughs> we'd like to thank you uh, for your loyal listening and yeah keep the flag of liberty flying keep your